You're listening to Chapter 6, CR's Journey. Reproductive freedom is critical to a whole range of issues. If we can't take charge of this most personal aspect of our lives, we can't take care of anything. It should not be seen as a privilege or as a benefit, but a fundamental human right. Faye Waddleton. I just know that people were like, it's hard. I mean, I didn't have kids until I was 36. And I think I was just either smart or the universe just, you know. I mean, I didn't want to have kids until I was, I don't know. I just, I remember like getting ready during the day and like, you know, in the morning and trying to get out the door and like, how the hell am I going to have kids? And like, how would I do this? Like, you know, like I can't even get myself together, much less like two kids. But I do it. It's kind of it's kind of hard. It's difficult. Ciara's candor is so refreshing. But I think the thing that sticks out the most for me is that she's at one with her decision to wait to become a mom. There's so much peace in her statement. And it's clear that this is something she spent a lot of time thinking about. A decision she had been careful to make. And the thing is... Not everyone wants to have kids by 35 or in their 20s or at all for that matter. And then there's some folks like Ciara, well, sometimes they just need some extra time to ease into the idea and decide if and when they're ready to become a parent when it feels right to them. And so Ciara put her trust in the universe. After all, it was the spirits that urged her to pack up and leave her hometown of Los Angeles to head for the mountains of Hilo, Hawaii back in 2017. These tender voices, they have been guiding her her entire life. They talk to her, they protect her, and when the time is right, they give her the gentle nudge she needs to see into her future. So Ciara listens to them. She always has, ever since she was just a youngin' growing up in LA. Because quite frankly, there wasn't a whole lot of guidance or conversation happening at home. So between the voices and Ciara's independent spirit, she easily figured things out on her own, including things like sex and pregnancy. When I was probably 15 years old, I was trained with the Women's Clinic of Los Angeles on Pico, I don't know if they're still there, to be a teen sexual sex advisor. I was trained like for many hours um, to teach kids uh, like about STDs and how to protect themselves and like birth control. And, yeah. Years later, when she was 21, CR's training at the clinic would come full circle. She was living at home with her mom at the time, working to get her cosmetology degree. And she was still dating her high school sweetheart. They had been together for five years. One day, Sierra learned she was pregnant and the couple decided they were gonna keep the baby. But as the days went by, something about it just didn't feel right to Ciara. In my whole life, what I was, because I'm very intuitive, my whole life that I was, what I was supposed to do flashed before my eyes. And I like got up from that vision and was like, fuck this, I can't do this. Ciara knew she wanted something different for her life. The vision had reminded her of that. So she called her boyfriend and told him exactly that. Then she made another call, this time to a doctor to schedule her abortion. 
In 2000, the year Ciara was 21, the Guttmacher Institute estimates that there were more than 1.3 million abortions in the U.S. While over time, the abortion rate has fallen to levels experienced before the 1973 Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade, the conversation and policymaking around abortion have become increasingly divisive, loaded with shame, violence, and misinformation that does everything but center the pregnant people having them. Many folks seeking an abortion, whether it's surgical or by pill, they live near major cities where the majority of abortion clinics are located. And fortunately, that was the case for Ciara. But access to general health care is already a challenge for rural residents who are more likely to be uninsured, experience higher rates of delayed care, and travel longer distances to that care. And the same is true for abortion access in these areas. In 2008, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists found that nearly 43% of rural women traveled between 50 and 100 miles just to get an abortion. And so the farther you travel for an abortion, the longer you wait to have an abortion, the higher the cost becomes. And that's already on top of the procedure cost itself, which can hit upwards of $1,500 out of pocket. So as you can imagine, for some pregnant people, the next call they might make may not be to the doctor, but rather to an abortion fund. So when folks are like, what do you do? What is Arc Southeast? I'll say that we're a reproductive justice organization that does abortion funding in the Southeast. Oriyaku Njaku is the co-founder and co-director of Access Reproductive Care Southeast. Raised in a Nigerian household in rural Kentucky, Oriyaku now calls Atlanta home where ARC Southeast is based. And then the more questions come from that. Uh, usually that's my initial screening question to be like, are we actually going to have this conversation or not? So uh, <laughs> they're like, oh, tell me more. It's like, okay, where? well, we work in six different states in the South, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, and South Carolina, and Tennessee. Um, and what we do in all of those states is to make sure that we're eliminating barriers to abortion access. So whether that's money, whether that's logistics like rides, childcare, gas money, a place to stay. We're going to support folks in getting rid of those obstacles to make sure that they get the care that they want and need. For Oriaku and other abortion activists, abortion care is so much more than the pro-choice, pro-life debate. Abortion care is deeply tied to reproductive justice. And in fact, it's a human right. It's the right to be a parent, to not be a parent, and to raise your families in safe and sustainable communities. And so, you know, for us, particularly being like people of color, Black folks, um, when thinking about abortion, it's not just about having that choice, which is why reproductive justice came about. It's not like just whether to choose or not to choose. Depending on what part of the country you live in, those rights are at greater risk. While roughly six in 10 Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, and the federal government even decided to permanently allow abortion pills by mail, access to abortion care on the state level looks a little differently. Kind of like how Indiana has enacted 55 abortion restrictions in the last decade alone, or a state like Texas has approved Senate Bill 8, AKA the six week abortion ban or even how the U.S. Supreme Court is deliberating 
Mississippi's latest challenge to overturn Roe v. Wade as of February 2022. And none of this is happening in isolation. This fight for abortion access ends up telling us a whole lot about a state's overall commitment to healthcare. And the data shows us that the states with the most restrictive anti-abortion laws have the least access to reproductive health care across the spectrum and often have the least access to health care in general. That's Quita Tensley-Peterson, a former co-director at ARC Southeast. And if you look at the map across the Southeast, a lot of the places where abortion clinics are located are in metropolitan areas and cities. Um, And so it's like the large abortion deserts are largely in rural areas. Queen is no stranger to rural life. They grew up in Allentown, Georgia, which as of the 2010 census, had a population of 169. The way to describe my town is like, it's very quiet. (laughs) Um, Like a lot of crickets and like, you know, just nature. (laughs) Um, Yeah, very small. There's no traffic lights. There's only like a caution light in the center of town. Lived 30 minutes from my school, lived 30 minutes from the closest hospital. Um, Yeah, like working at an abortion fund now, I know that I live two hours in either direction from an abortion clinic. So just very rural, very sleepy. This is exactly what the ARC Southeast team keeps in mind as they move through this work. 94% of counties in the South have no known abortion provider. And none of the six states that ARC Southeast operates in has expanded Medicaid. And this is on top of the fact that the 1977 Hyde Amendment still prohibits federal programs like Medicaid, TRICARE, and Indian Health Services from even covering abortions, unless in the case of rape, incest, or when a pregnancy threatens a mother's life. So these barriers to care are real, and they have real consequences for families all over people are forced to make decisions around their health care already coming from a place of scarcity and lack and not from a place of dignity and compassion and humanity. Dignity, compassion, humanity, that's what people calling ARC Southeast are met with. More than 80% of callers are Black from all over the diaspora and mostly from the South, though some folks in the Midwest travel down for services too. More than half of the callers are Christian and 77% are already parents. Abortion is so common. One in four people will have an abortion, at least one abortion in their lifetime. We know that some people have multiple abortions. And also people have been having abortions since the dawn of time. And many of us in our own like uh, indigenous communities, in our own heritages, People have abortion methods that we've been using before Western medicine caught up with abortion methods. And the reality is when you become pregnant, there are many potential outcomes that could happen. And abortion is one of them. And we need to be clear about putting abortion back in the potential outcomes of pregnancy and not something that lives outside of that. It's like it's its own thing that becomes super highly politicized and stigmatized. But it's really just one of the potential outcomes. And that's how Ciara saw it too. She knew in that moment, she didn't want to be pregnant. She didn't want to become a parent. And that outcome was perfectly okay. Throughout her 20s, 
Ciara found herself traveling back and forth between LA and Hawaii. With each trip, she let herself daydream about what it would be like to move to the Aloha State for good. But family obligations came first. Her grandfather needed her help back home, so she went. But little did Ciara know, home had a lot more in store for her. It was there that she would meet her husband, Daryl, for the first time in 2011. Um, when I came back to LA um, from um, from the island for a little bit, like I um, I was working with a friend's nonprofit. It's called uh, the KVBL, the Kids Venice Basketball League, and then the VBL, the Venice Basketball League. And my husband was working with it too, or Daryl at the time, Daryl. I, I we don't really totally re remember the t the first time we met, but it was almost like we had known each other forever. But he says that he saw me with my long flowing hair in a bikini and a, um, a surfboard because I would teach the kids how to surf and yoga and we would teach them sustainable living and blah, blah, blah. So and then I just remember his muscles and I remember um, it's funny because him and his friends were playing dominoes. And um, I, I walked by them and, and they were drinking at the time. I didn't drink at the time. Um, they, were, they were playing dominoes and I, I said, they're like, you wanna play? I'm like, yeah. And, and Daryl was like, damn, she knows how to play dominoes? I'm like, yeah. I know how to play dominoes. <laughs> Even though that first meeting didn't really lead anywhere, there's something about love in the summertime. Sunday after Sunday, Ciara and Daryl would run into each other at the same exact spot in Venice. I remember one time I was sitting with him talking and we just, I mean, like, it was like, we like just could talk about everything. And like, it was so easy and nice. And, and then I had to get up to go do something. And then of course, you know, like the hoochies, they'd be swarming. So this girl had come and sat next to him. Um, this yoga chick, white girl yoga chick, and I was like, whatever. And like, I just was like, okay. So, like, I saw, I came back and talked to him, and he was, she was, I was like, peace. And I like bumped out. Like, I was like, whatever. I'm not gonna even go there. Months later, SCR was cruising around Venice in her 77 Volkswagen Beetle. She and Daryl crossed paths again. I was, I was just finished a meditation meeting, and I wasn't gonna go to the v, the, K, the VBL. And then I was driving through Venice, and of course I saw him, Daryl and his brother. And then like his brother always was like, sure, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I look at, Daryl denies this to, to this day, but, and he was sitting in the back of the White Lotus, just standing there. And I was like, hi, Daryl. And he was like, hi. And from there, the relationship grew. Ciara was in her early 30s, and it was around the same time that the voices started nudging her again. Like in my like early 30s, like I'm like, whoa, you know, like it definitely was like this, like, hmm, maybe you should have kids, you know. As her relationship with Daryl got more serious, she started wondering if a future with him could include all of those things. And she was nervous to ask because Daryl was divorced and already had children. Even though I may like something or blah, blah, I have to be honest with what I feel and what I need, you know. And I told him, I said, well, I know you've already been married and you have kids and you probably don't want to have kids anymore. So like, I want to get married and have kids. Like, so maybe, you know, like I was like going to be like, okay, maybe let's just cut it here. And he was like, why would you think I don't want to have kids? And I was like, oh, you would like to have kids again? And he was like, I love kids. I was like, oh. 
That was the beginning of their forever. The two tied the knot in January 2014, and the following year, they learned they were expecting their first child. As they started to make plans for the baby's arrival, one thing Ciara knew for sure was that she didn't want to have a hospital birth. A few years back, Ciara had been a doula for a friend giving birth at a hospital in L.A. And what she saw, well, it really scarred her. But I saw how they treated her, and I saw how the medical industry is, and she was a woman of color. And it just seemed all wrong. It just, like, she was laying down, they forced her legs open, and, like, the fitness, like, it just seemed all wrong. And she's screaming, and she told them she didn't want to have drugs, but they kept insisting. It was a traumatizing experience for both women, and Ciara knew that when it was time to plan for her first birth, she wanted one that reflected her spirituality and deep ties to Mother Nature. Together, Ciara and Daryl decided that they wanted to have their baby at home, under the care of a midwife. Yeah, Ciara was actually my first primary birth as a student midwife. Based in Oahu, Hawaii, Tanya Smith-Johnson is a mother of six homeschoolers, a certified professional midwife, and the new president of the National College of Midwifery. But back then, when she was just getting to know Ciara, Tanya was just starting her midwifery practice in Los Angeles. I met Sierra um, when she just came into the community birth center, you know, looking for a midwife. I was there for her first interview, you know, when she sat down with us and talked about her wishes and what she wanted for her birth, you know. Sierra was just, you know, she was just an amazing client. It was amazing, like, taking care of her. So I did her prenatal visits, you know, just lovely visits, you know, hour long sitting and talking. Um, you know, she's a foodie like me. So just talking about food and just nutrients and just all this just kind of lovely, lovely um, ways in which she wanted her birth to be. Tanya was just one of several Black women birth workers that made up CR's care team. And then I had um, my doula, which was another beautiful Black woman. And like, it was beautiful. The energy was amazing. And my doula, I'm almost six feet tall and she was taller than me. Naturally, like, like 155, 160. Like, that's my weight, you know? And then on top of that, like, I gained 80 pounds with my child. So I'm big when I'm pregnant, you know? And she like picked me up and held me and like, I'm like, wow, this is great. In December, 2015, at 36 years old, Ciara gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Tiare. The pregnancy, the birth, everything happened exactly as Ciara had envisioned. If you're curious to learn more about home births, you should check out the Homecoming Podcasts. Created by two student midwives and home birth mamas themselves, hosts Shea Pounds and Isis Rose interview other birth workers and parents choosing to birth at home. The show covers topics ranging from hospital transfers to home birth after C-section, capturing the joy and positivity of Black birthing along the way. Listen to Homecoming wherever you get your podcasts. I'm also excited to tell you about a new digital community created to help you have the pregnancy and birth experience that you envision. It's called Willomi, and it's the only digital community founded by a registered nurse of color focused on guiding and supporting birthing parents throughout their entire journey. 
Download the Rolomi app for free in your app store and enter the code NATO at sign up to let them know we sent you. Now back to the show. Ciara's life as a newlywed and a mom were big adjustments for her. Two years after having Tiare, Ciara's grandfather passed away. They were really close, so his loss devastated her. But this transition also gave Ciara the nudge to pick back up where she and Hawaii left off all those years back. The spirits had been calling her there for years, and now she was finally in the position to answer that call. In December 2017, Ciara, Daryl, and their baby girl made the permanent move. The native Hawaiian kingdom, Kanaka Meaoli, is said to have began with Po, the deep rich blackness found at the bottom of the sea. For indigenous Hawaiians, this blackness is where their gods dwell and where all life begins. And still, black folks aren't the first to come to mind when most people talk about Hawaii. But we have a history there that spans more than 300 years. Around the turn of the 18th century, more and more free black men saw seafaring as a means to get away from the violence on the mainland, while also earning a few bucks along the way. And traveling to places like Hawaii offered that. Beyond sailing the seas, black folks in Hawaii were also entrepreneurs, musicians, lawyers, and educators. Yeah, Hawaii was welcoming for black folks for a long time. But eventually, its monarchy was overthrown and the islands colonized in 1889. American racism took hold, as it always does. And by the time Hawaii entered the Union as a state in 1959, Jim Crow segregation was firmly established on the mainland. While those laws never officially legalized in Hawaii, those attitudes and beliefs about blackness and race, they started to seep over to the islands. But Black folks kept coming to Hawaii nonetheless, some by their own choice, and others, like Tanya, as assigned by the U.S. military. In addition to being a midwife, she's also a U.S. Navy Hospital Corpsman veteran and an active duty spouse on the island of Oahu. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. They're, you know, we here. You know, there are Black people here. And, you know, a lot of Black people get here vis-a-vis the military, right? And it's about upwards of 200,000 families here, you know, and a lot of those are Black folks, you know, particularly if if you look in certain branches, right? So the Army, you know, encompasses more Black people than, say, the Navy does. And then also you have, you know, a swath of people, younger people who've come here for jobs or they're part of the University of Hawaii, so they're, you know, they're professors there, or just people who are just like, Hawaii sounds like a place that, you know, I can get away from it all and I want to settle. So there are those people here who never were in the military but decided to make Hawaii their home. So it's an interesting, you know, eclectic group of the types of Black folks you'll find here, right? Today, Black people make up just 3% of Hawaii's population. The Black community there is pretty small, but it's mighty. And for Tanya, she's always happy to see Black folks out and about. Like when you see Black folks out to where you're like, hey, like, hey, you know, hey, fam, you know, and because we all kind of get it. And I think in general, most Black people here do feel like this is a place where 
at least, you know, not to say racism isn't here because it absolutely is. Um, but it is a place where people feel like at least when I drive on the street, I don't necessarily panic when I hear sirens or the police stop me. You know what I mean? And, and I feel that like this isn't a place where I'm necessarily scared to raise my six children, you know, compared to other places. So um, I think it's all of those reasons that brought, you know, Black people here. Ciara and Darrow found their own piece of paradise in the town of Hilo on the island of Hawaii. Hawaii, it's the big island. We're the east side of Hawaii, which is Hilo. Hilo's the east side. We're siders. A year into settling into their new lives, they found out they were pregnant with their second child. And naturally, they wanted to try to recreate what they loved so much about Tiare's birth. But this wasn't L.A. Heck, it wasn't even Honolulu. Ciara was tucked far away in Hilo, which meant that trying to recreate her beautiful, all-Black women care team would be damn near impossible. While midwifery has always existed in Hawaii, pathways to licensure and regulation have severely restricted who can practice and who can access these services. So on top of all the other hats she wears, Tanya also serves as a policy director of Hawaii's Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies Coalition. And she understands the barriers to midwifery care far too well. It's interesting, right? Because Hawaii is so isolated. You know, it, it takes us five hours to get to any other land base, be it California or Japan, right? So there's, you know, there's only so many birth workers here. There's only so much access. There are Black midwifery students here who are trying to get done now. There's, a, you know, there's a, another Black midwife who's here who's been a midwife for a long time. And, you know, there are others kind of sprinkled out. But here in Hawaii, there, there might just be like maybe 12 or 13 CPMs across all the islands. You know, that's crazy small. And it's not just the number of certified professional midwives that's the problem. And then it's the same issues that you see on the mainland, right? It's not covered by insurance, so people have to pay out of pocket. And the cost of living here in Hawaii is so high to where, you know, I, I think people try to make it, you know, accessible and affordable, but also people have to live, you know? And, and so it's this kind of access, you know, and kind of barrier on both ends for the, you know, for the midwife and the doula and also for, you know, people who are trying to get it. But people, you know, just do that thing that you see other places. They barter or they do sliding scales, but it's just not enough midwives here. And this coverage gap hits Black people in Hawaii hard, pushing them even farther away from the kind of care they need and deserve. Racism and anti-Blackness is very real here, and it shows up in interesting ways. The assumption is that if you're Black here, that you're military, off top. So it gives people the ability to kind of be dismissive because they're like, you're not here. You're not from here, you're not part of here, you're here for, you know, you're transient, you're here for a moment, and then you are going to go away. So I think lots of times Black people don't necessarily feel home here. And with that, when, what that looks like as far as accessing care is that you often don't see anyone who looks like you. So you'll probably never run into a Black doctor. You'll never see a Black nurse, probably. And if you do, you'll see it in the military, right? But, you know, in the, in the military hospital. But just if you're birthing outside of that, you won't. At 40 years old, Ciara was married, the mother of a toddler, and with a little one on the way. In many ways, it was the spirits that had brought her this far. 
Yet as she prepared to welcome her second daughter, she'd soon find herself running into the same barriers to care that Black rural folks on the mainland deal with far too often. Motivated by these very challenges, Tanya worked with state legislators to develop the Hawaii Mothers Matter Maternal Health Equity Bill in 2020. SB 900, <laughs> that was my baby. And it really was to, you know, to, to make sure that Hawaii is taking a look at what we're doing here specifically, specifically to Black, you know, birthing people, because it's this idea, again, like Black people aren't here. We have other people here, but Black people aren't birthing here. And then when I start to dig and you look at the, you know, the data, Black people are having the same disparities here in Hawaii as anywhere else, three to four times, even more than that. You know, and I think people kind of left Hawaii out of that conversation because, you know, the, the Black population here is so small. And so I had to make the pitch to like, it's here too. You know, um, we need to care about Black maternal health here as well. Black, you know, birthing people are the most harmed people here in Hawaii. Let's, you know, let's recognize that. And what are we going to do about it? The bill called for three things. One, that morbidity and mortality data be collected and disaggregated by race. Two, implicit bias training for anyone who has touch points with birthing parents. And three, the creation of a community-based maternal task force. As noble as it was, the bill didn't pass. But the fight for Black maternal health in Hawaii is far from over. It shouldn't be a, a boutique experience. It shouldn't be a concierge experience that some people get, you know, and some people have access to. This should be the model. This should be what we want everyone to have. We should want everyone to be cared for in these ways. And it shouldn't be something to where people have to go out of their way to do, um, dig deep in their pockets to do. It should be something that just on a national level, this is how we take care of birthing people, pregnant people, postpartum people, babies. Like it is the foundation of a nation, you know, how we take care of, you know, this sector and the way that we do it is just wrong, you know, and it's awful. And the laissez-faire attitude that people have about it is, you know, is what drives me. Bills like SB 900, midwives like Tanya, and advocates like Oriaku work to guarantee that people's rights to make decisions for and about their bodies is never compromised, no matter where they live. Quita Tinsley puts it best. When I think about like young pregnant people, pregnant people who aren't married, pregnant people who aren't cishet women, like pregnant people who choose to become pregnant because they just want to be pregnant and not they're in love, right? Like we have so much shame and stigma around pregnant people's bodies. And abortion is just another one of those ways that we tend to like pick and choose who has the right type of abortion story, who has the right type of pregnancy story. And the reality is if you're pregnant, you're pregnant. That's just a fact. And you get to choose your own journey around what comes next. And if something happens, then you get to choose how you want to move forward. And no one can shame you for that. And organizations like Arc Southeast, we're here to hold you in all of that. Next on Natal, Ciara is joined by all of our parents. Shayla, Eric, and Anasia, as we hear how each of their pregnancy journeys unfold, from the physical, to the mental, to the emotional, including doing it all during a global pandemic. 